Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington, and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. We're going to turn now to uh, God's Word. <clears throat> so do pick up a Bible, uh, which hopefully is near you. And if you turn to page 1196, we're looking at this New Testament letter of 2 Timothy, and Nathan's going to come and read that for us. So this morning's reading is taken from 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the words of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles, not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes, and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master and prepared to do any work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Nathan. Now, under the seats in the, in the aisle, aisle seats, as ever, is a handout, so do pass those along if you're sitting at the end of the rows. Hand them down. Let me lead us in prayer as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, Lord, please speak to us now by your Spirit who wrote it, such that we might know you better, so that we might live lives that honour you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one of the big items of news this week has uh, been uh, this report, Anyone know what that report is? You might not have the full title. Uh, you might not even know, but it's called the Privileges Committee Report uh, into Boris Johnson and uh, looking at whether or not he deliberately misled the House of Commons with his denials over his knowledge of parties in Downing Street, all that sort of stuff. Now, I'm not going to start making political statements or anything like that in the slightest because the one thing I wanted to draw out 
from this past week was actually something that really struck me, and that is that people really do care about truth. Uh, it matters whether something is true or not. Truth matters. And when truth is distorted, or falsehoods are promoted, or there are lies, it can be very damaging indeed. It distorts reality. It shatters trust. And we've heard that spoken about quite a lot in our public life. And it's, of course, true in our private lives as well. And it's true also, even more so, when it comes to the things of God, uh, to spiritual realities, to who God is, the truth of who he is, the truth of reality, of life as a whole, the big questions of life. And that is a great concern of the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter of to Timothy, to Timothy. And his big, big concern, as we've been thinking about over the past few weeks, is shown back in chapter 1. You might like to flip over chapter 1, verse 14. Here's the crucial charge that Paul gives to his apprentice, as it were, Timothy. And he says this, Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Guard the good deposit. Guard the beautiful gospel. Uh, why such language? Why such language of guarding this gospel, this gospel message? Well, presumably because there are people out there who want to steal it. You only guard something if there's a threat of it being stolen. And how do you steal a message? Well, you can change a message. You can undermine a message, twist the message, distort it. And that is the problem that's going on in Timothy's day. And actually, it's been a problem throughout church history, and it's a problem in our day, of how easy it can be for the beautiful message of Jesus Christ to be distorted or twisted, or changed. And the truth really, really, really matters. Now, today, we're going to think about three things that Paul has to say about this. Uh, next week, in chapter 3, we'll see, see a few more. Uh, but in terms of today, and uh, what Paul has to say about how we deal with the problem of what he calls false teaching, uh, he has three things to say. And the first is this. Do all you can to correctly handle God's word. Do all you can to correctly handle God's word. Verse 15 of chapter 2 says this. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. It can be a little bit embarrassing presenting a, a poor piece of work. I mean, think about your work context or school or wherever it might be. If you hand in a half-finished piece of homework, that can be a little bit embarrassing. Or you, you hand in a report, but it's just full of mistakes. Uh, maybe you're a teacher, you delivered a terrible lesson in front of an inspector. That can be a bit embarrassing. Uh, maybe uh, your job is organizing stuff and it just hasn't gone very well at all and nobody's turned up or whatever it might be. Uh, maybe it's just a job at home. A bit of DIY. You uh, were supposed to be putting up a shelf and then you showed it to your husband or wife and they looked at it and it was all wonky and it's a little bit embarrassing. Um, 
having our work inspected, seen, is actually quite a strong motivator, isn't it, for doing something well. And what we see here is that uh, God will see our work, particularly as we handle his word. And that's an encouragement to us to handle it well, to handle it correctly, so that we need not be ashamed before God. Now that applies first to me as I preach God's word. I need to handle God's word correctly and you need to help me do that well. But it's actually also true for all of us in many different settings. Uh, You might be a small group leader, home group leader, oasis group leader, uh, or just leading Bible studies in that context. And we're called to correctly handle the Word of God. Uh, Maybe you're a parent and you're reading the Bible with your children. Uh, We're to correctly handle the Word of God. Maybe it's just sharing encouragement and scriptures with friends as we walk along the Christian life together. And we want to do that well. Uh, Maybe it's just reading it for ourselves trying to understand what God's word means for ourselves. We're to handle it correctly so that there's nothing to be ashamed of. And this sort of phrase, handle correctly, what it uh, literally means is cut a straight path. Cut a straight path. Uh, the picture here is of a sort of Roman road and a Roman road being built. And as we know anything about Roman roads is that they built them straight. The fastest route to... Uh, their destination. doesn't swerve around. That doesn't go sort of down windy roads or lanes. It's not twisting, uh, not being reshaped. A Roman road goes straight. And that is the image that Paul wants to say to Timothy. As you handle God's word, be straightforward with it. Deal with, deal with it accurately. Uh, plainly giving the plain meaning, as it were, of the text. Now, this is not saying be simplistic, uh, or that scripture isn't rich and deep and at times complicated and quite difficult to understand. And it's not to say that we don't need Bible scholars. We really do need Bible scholars to help us understand uh, parts of scripture. But it does mean that actually much of Scripture is a bit like a main road. It is fairly straightforward. It is really clear. And it is plain to see what God is like and his character. What we're like, made in the image of God and yet fallen and sinful. Uh, What Jesus Christ is like. What he came and did, dying on the cross in our place, raised to life, ruling now, ascended, and he will return. Uh, This stuff is straightforward. It's like a sort of straight, big, main highway that goes through the Bible. And it is plain to see. Some of the words that we saw at the end of last week that Paul starts in verse 14 by saying, keep reminding God's people of these things, speaking of from verse 11, if we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Those are just massive truths. Plain, clear truths. 
that we're to handle straightforwardly, uh, not to distort, not to reshape, not to swerve around with them. That's the first thing Paul says in the context of the danger of losing the good deposit. Why is it so important? Why is it so important to correctly handle the word of truth? Well, the second point here that Paul says is this. He essentially says this, be under no illusions of the damage that false teaching does. Be under no illusions of the damage that false teaching does. Verse 14, keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. The opposite of correctly handling God's word is quarreling about words. Or as verse 16 puts it, godless chatter. That's kind of the opposite of being straightforward. Instead, it looks to sort of stir or to confuse or to provoke or to play around with these central truths about God. It's often to ask that age-old question that the serpent asked back in in the Garden of Eden. You might remember, did God really say? And to start an argument on the back of that. Uh, verse 18 puts it like this. It's, it's as though it's a departure from the truth. And this first section here, from verses 14 down to 19, shows us again and again what this does. What are the consequences? What are the costs of this? And what it does, verse 14, it ruins lives. It ruins lives. It's of no value. There's no life in it. All it does is destroy. Verse 16, it leads to ungodliness. Verse 16, let me read that. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. And it's quite striking how that's put because often false teaching presents itself as sort of teaching that's breaking new ground, that's introducing something new. And what Paul is kind of saying here is, yes, there is a sense in which there's progress that it brings about, but it's not progress in a good way. In fact, it's progress in a bad way. It leads to more and more ungodliness. And then even more strikingly, in verse 17, we read this, this teaching will spread like gangrene. Now, I made the mistake last night of uh, Googling gangrene and uh, seeing some pictures of this. And you'll be pleased to know I'm not putting it up on the the screen because you will not thank me for that. It's horrible. Uh, Gangrene is is the uh, body tissues dying. As you know, one thing about gangrene, what is gangrene? It spreads. And it's just body tissue dying and spreading. And it's grim and it's horrible. And it's a very powerful image that Paul's wanting to say, this is what false teaching does. It, is, it brings about death and it spreads. It brings ruin. And that's why, verse 18, we see how it actually brings about the destruction of people's faith. Speaking about Hymenaeus and Philetus, who've departed from the truth, verse 18, they say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some can sort of shipwreck people's faith. 
I always remember a phrase that a former pastor of mine had when he spoke about false teaching. He said, he says this, false teaching is cruel teaching. It's cruel because it brings about ruin. It brings about ungodliness. It spreads like gangrene and it destroys faith. Now, you might be thinking, really? <laughs> is it really that serious? How does, how does that work? Well, actually, Paul gives us a live example here in verses 17 and 18, speaking of these two people, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Uh, let me just read from verse 17 again. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Striking, by the way, they've departed from the truth. In other words, at one point, they did know the truth. And one of the saddest things, to my mind, is that some of the false teachers of our day, people speaking falsely of God, would formerly describe themselves as evangelicals, might even still describe themselves as evangelicals, as gospel people and yet have moved on from evangelical gospel doctrine. And how Hymenaeus and Philetus, these two particularly did it, is they came up with this idea that the resurrection has already taken place. Now, the sharp amongst us will be thinking, hang on, that's true, isn't it? The resurrection has taken place. Well, yes, Jesus' resurrection has taken place. Of course, that's true. That's not what they were talking about. They're talking about the future resurrection that the Bible speaks of. The resurrection of all believers, all those who put their trust in Christ, the Bible tells us, will be raised, given new bodies, and the new creation will be brought in when Jesus returns. And they're saying, no, it doesn't happen like that. It's already happened now. Uh, It's difficult to know exactly what sort of spin they were putting on it, but it might well have been something along the lines of, you know, we need to think in terms of resurrection in terms of more spiritual language, not physical language. People don't literally rise from the dead. Uh, we need to think about it as a sort of spiritual resurrection, and it's one that carries on through uh, to eternity. Uh, that idea is certainly pretty common today. And the trouble with this is that it destroys people's faith. Uh, one person I was reading on this was really helpful. Just detailing what this means for all sorts of different um, ways in which we understand our world today. Because one lie, one falsehood, it always leads to other falsehoods. And what sort of impact would this have? Well, it does this. It denies, firstly, the goodness of physical creation. Uh, That's one implication of it. If If God is not going to bring about a physical new creation, well, then the stuff of this world is less important. That has huge implications for how we understand the material world, how we understand ourselves, how we understand our bodies, how we understand the stuff that we enjoy in life. Uh, Such an idea of resurrection also denies the trustworthiness of God's promise. He says that he'll bring about a new creation, and this is basically saying, no, he's not doing it quite in the way you think he will. It also denies the justice of God because it seems to be denying Jesus coming back on Judgment Day and bringing about justice and putting all things right. It takes away our future hope or at least radically changes it. And it also suggests 
that, and it can often suggest this, that if we're suffering today, that somehow that is our problem. That the resurrection life, you know, there, there, you shouldn't be suffering. Maybe it's a lack of faith. Or if you are, you're lacking faith in some sort of way. I don't know if that's exactly how these two back in this day would say it, but it's how many people speak about the resurrection today. It's called the prosperity gospel. The idea that everything's happened now. The resurrection has already taken place. Heaven's here on earth. Everything should be perfect and good. And if it's not perfect and good, then, well, you're lacking faith. I mean, that destroys faith, doesn't it? Because as we go through tough times in life, we're thinking, well, gosh, is that my fault? And the truth is, that's false teaching. It's not true. It's not what God says. He says that there will be tough times. There will be suffering. We were thinking about this last week. There will be suffering now. The glory's to come. So all this is to say, false teaching, can you see how just this piece of false teaching can cause huge amounts of problems? It can often feel attractive to start with. There must be something attractive about false teaching, otherwise no one would say it or believe it. But actually, when you begin to allow this to play out, it undermines, it destroys faith, it brings ruin, it spreads like gangrene. There's no life in it. And one of the things that, again, just to emphasize on this, because I think this is such an interesting example, is that often with false teaching, uh, the language stays the same. So the word resurrection here is still used. It's, someone I again read this week said it's a bit like a taxidermist. You know what taxidermy is? Uh, here's a bit of taxidermy coming up. Uh, there is a bear. Um, but not alive. Uh, it would be quite alarming, a bear coming through a wall. Um, but what's happening there is uh, you've got the outside of a bear stuffed full of straw. And that is something false teaching often does. It takes a concept, an idea that is true, that is like resurrection, but empties it of its life-giving realities and stuffs it full of straw. And it might look initially like something that is real and true, but actually when we look a bit harder, it's not. It's false. It's wonky. But it's a very effective thing to do. Uh, another writer put it like this, to deny the resurrection in this context would be to rob the wolf of its sheep's clothing. Now, I have to say, there are plenty of examples of this in our world today. Uh, many people speak of Jesus, use the name of Jesus, but they deny his uniqueness. Many people speak of a broken world, but actually minimize the reality of sin and judgment. Many people speak of the Bible and the importance of the Bible, but actually undermine its authority. Many people talk about grace, but effectively repackage it so that salvation is found by works. Many people speak about marriage and faithfulness, but rewrite Christian ethics into it. And this is not something I want to 
bang on about a lot. Uh, but it is worth just pausing from time to time as we go through this book in particular, just to recognize this is particularly going on in the Church of England at the moment, in our own denomination. I was at a conference yesterday uh, put on by the Church of England Evangelical Council, uh, weighing up what's going on in the Church of England at the moment. And I was very struck by what one senior person in the church said. He said this, it was a battle. This is a battle for the soul of the Church of England as it discusses its sexual ethics. And really the question is, will the Church of England, will it be be a place that brings life and is a source of life? Or is it going to be a place that actually brings ruin, that destroys people's faith? That is why it's so important. Such a big issue at this time. And we need to be aware of this. We need to be praying about it. And we need to be under no illusion of the damage that false teaching, that coming off these main highways can do to faith. Now all this can feel a little bit destabilizing, which is why I think verse 19 is a real encouragement. Have a look at verse 19. We read this. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. Sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. Even though all this sort of stuff is going on, God's foundation stands firm. And I think the image being given here is is the idea that his people, those who are his, they're secure. They're secure as... uh, Names chiseled into stone is secure. Nothing can change that. But also, verse 19 goes on, not just to speak about how there's security, but also a bit of an encouragement to Christians. The second quote there, everyone who confesses on the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. And that takes us to this final point that Paul makes. And he says this, really, I think, in verses 19 through to the end of this chapter. Oppose false teachers in a Christian way. Oppose false teachers in a Christian way. Uh, These verses, they're all about our character, being godly, being faithful as we engage with false teaching. Uh, We need to engage in a way that is Christian, that is in accordance to with what we believe. And the truth is, it's so easy not to. Uh, when people are speaking untruths, when people are talking nonsense, maybe you, you've got friends who are sort of drifting away from the Christian faith, and it's so frustrating, some of the things they seem to be saying. Uh, or there's someone at work who's sort of just stirring trouble for Christians, sort of just dropping, trying to produce quarrels. Or for us, as a church and uh, as we engage with the challenges in the Church of England at the moment, it's very easy. It's very easy to be angry. It's very easy to be frustrated. Uh, It's very easy to be rude and abrasive in letter writing, in tweets, whatever it might be. It's easy also to be sort of proud, just sort of distance ourselves and pity people and say, oh, well, that's their problem, to be disinterested, to be uncompassionate. And that is not what we're called to as Christians. The language used here of the Christian 
is that of a servant in verse 24, speaks of the Lord's servant. And verse 21 speaks of the master. And uh, we have very quickly seven marks, I think, could be divided in different ways, but seven marks of the Christian servant, what we're to be like as we engage with those who teach falsely. Uh, The first is that we're to be holy. So, verse 20, in a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some, some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, prepared to do any good work. So what Paul's doing here is giving an illustration, illustration of a large house, and in a large house you've got special stuff, gold, silver, and you've got the not-so-special stuff, the sort of the wood, the clay, disposable stuff, probably used for waste disposal, whatever it might be. Uh, We actually probably do the same. Uh, Do do you have different types of rubber gloves, for example, some that are for the washing up and some to clean the toilet? And the point is you don't want to mix those up. Uh, That is not a good move to do. Or cloths, some cloths for the floor, some for the surfaces. If you mix those up, that can cause problems. And that's the sort of illustration that Paul has in mind here. He's saying, as Christians, you need to be holy, you need to be distinct, you need to cleanse yourself of sin, get rid of sin, so that you can be useful for the task that God has for you. That's the first thing, holy. Second, mature. Verse 22, he says this, flee the evil desires of youth. What are the evil desires of youth? I think in this context, particularly, it's being hot-headed. It's sort of fighting fire with fire. That can be a particular challenge for younger people. Generalisation, I know. But he's saying, look, don't be that. Don't be impulsive. Don't just sort of fight fire with fire. Don't quarrel. Rather, be mature. Verse 23, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. Third, he says the servant is to be uh, pursuing good things. Pursuing good things. Verse 22, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. These are strong words, aren't they? Flee from something, run away from that but pursue, run towards something different, which are good things, righteousness, faith, love, peace, seeking Christian friendships with others. Uh, Fourth, they're to be gentle. This is such a striking line. Uh, Verse 25, opponents must be gently instructed. Gently instructed. There's to be kindness. We're to seek to win the person over. We're to be concerned for their well-being, for their souls, not see them as just a problem, but someone who we long to come back to the Lord. That means we're not to be resentful. We're to be forgiving. We're to be gentle, but also courageous. Instructing will take courage. It will take thought. It will take effort. Sixth, We're to be hopeful. I think, again, verse 25 takes us in that direction. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil 
who has taken them captive to do his will. will. We're to be hopeful. And we can be hopeful because it's God's work. God grants repentance. His spirit brings people back, sobers them up. But also, finally, seventh, we're to be realistic, knowing that this is a spiritual thing. It is striking how 26 puts it. They're in the trap of the devil. They've taken, they've been taken captive. It's a little bit like the bumblebee I came across this week in our house who got stuck in a web up in a skylight. And uh, it was trapped. It couldn't go anywhere. Did the old cup postcard, and it escaped. And that's a little picture of what it's true to be in opposition to God. Uh, there is a sense in which false teachers and those who are false teaching are trapped in the web of lies that the father of lies, the devil, spins. And they need a rescue, which is why we should be gentle and courageous, but hopeful, because God can bring rescue. Now, as we close, how how do we live like this? How do we do this? Well, I've I've got a a confession to make. Last week, I made a terrible mistake last week. Uh, Last week, I I said that we had the Trooping of the Colour last uh, weekend, and that was not true. It uh, shows how much I know about the military traditions of our country. Uh, last weekend, actually, was the Colonel's Review. It was a different event. Still the same soldiers all there. Colonel's Review, I think Prince William was there. This weekend, if you follow the news, was the Trooping of the Colour, and also known as the King's Birthday Parade. Uh, but all the headlines were for Prince Louis. Did you see any of these pictures? Here is a picture of Prince Louis. there on the balcony. And uh, there he is, saluting... Now, why is he saluting? Why is he saluting? Uh, well, probably because he's just spent the last two hours watching soldiers go around a parade ground and watching his own grandfather take the salute. Uh, here he is. There's the king taking the salute. And Louis was no doubt watching that. And then, of course, copying the behavior. Now, how do we live in a godly way? How do we oppose opponents Christianly. Well, we need to look at Jesus, don't we? We need to look to our king and to see how he dealt with opponents, to see his godliness, his maturity, his pursuit of righteousness and love and peace, his gentleness and yet courage, his straightforwardness, his plain speaking, his humility, his trust in God. And here's the thing, first, to know that all those characteristics were given to us as we stood opposed to him, as we stood enemies of God in our sin. Jesus showed us grace and love and gentleness and yet straightforwardly, humbly told us what is true about him, about ourselves, about salvation. So we're going to look to Jesus, and we're going to uh, finish uh, our time together now doing that by singing of him. Uh, But let's just take a few moments of quiet now, and uh, maybe particularly think, where does this cut in my life? Where where does this feature in my life? Where where am I coming across uh, teaching that is wrong about Jesus? Maybe stuff up we're dabbling with ourselves, maybe friends that we're finding frustrating, 
are people who would love to come to know Christ and pray that the Lord might build this character, a character after Jesus in us. So let's just take a, a moment of quiet. Father, we pray that you would help us to know how important the truth of who you are, the truth of the gospel, it is so important because it is a matter of life and death. Lord, help us to value the truth. Help us to cut straight paths. Help us to sit under your word. And Lord, please grow us in the character of Jesus so that we might particularly deal with those who don't speak truly of Jesus with great love, with great patience, with great gentleness, but with great courage and clarity too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.